0: Every single decision that we make every single day is infused in politics. So you can either let other people make decisions about you in your life, or you can jump up and make them yourself. And I really love finding and seeking after truth. Mm-hmm. And I really love beautiful things. Like, I love beautiful things. And we have such a beautiful state that's just being completely crushed because we are not providing. Our fellow citizens with a platform, with a foundation that's sturdy and durable. We, what we've seen through watching over our kids' shoulders through Zoom classrooms, I think a lot of parents are saying, hold on, I did not sign up to whatever this is. Mm. So we have to fundamentally go back and, and say, okay, what is education? And is what we're doing right now, can we actually consider education? And I would say, no. And life should be fun. It should be enjoyable. It should be, there should be some amount of, you know, happiness and everything you do. And, and, and again, that's not to say it's devoid of sadness or, or challenges or, um, conflicts, but it doesn't need to be contentious all the time. And it doesn't need to be chaotic. It should be ordered.
1: Hey everyone. It's Jennifer. And I'm so happy to welcome you back to season two of the connection podcast. I am super excited to present the first guest of this season, Lance Christensen. Lance is currently a candidate for the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction and the Vice President of Education Policy and Government Affairs at the California Policy Center. A father of five, Lance has 20 years of direct experience in education policy as a teacher, legislative consultant, parent advocate, education nonprofit executive and public finance specialist. Lance knows what it takes to produce an exceptional education, has the vision and leadership to reestablish California as the country's best place to educate our children and is willing to fight alongside parents on behalf of their children. Lance and I chat about everything from appreciating the good and beautiful to Lance's specialty education policy, and particularly policy in California and how he would go about improving this state's pretty abysmal public education system. Lance was assigned as my mentor when I entered my master's program at Pepperdine, and it couldn't have been a better match. He has a sharp intellect and a kind and generous heart. Especially if you are a listener in California voting in the upcoming state and local elections, you won't want to miss this discussion with Lance Christensen. Hello, Lance. Good morning.
0: Jennifer, I am so glad to be with you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to have you. Uh, So let's just give everyone an idea of how you got here, because you are the first episode of the second, like I'll be very official, the second season of of my podcast. And I've made a little bit of a transition over the past uh, year since I've started this podcast. And so you are my first episode that has a little different take on this podcast. And I think that's what a good podcast should do. It should evolve as interests grow and preferences change. And at least that's my, I've always said, I'm going to be the female Joe Rogan. So I just kind of interview anybody I find fairly interesting that has something good to say. Um, But this is, you were definitely in the field of politics and policy. So tell us uh, how you got here.
0: So I've always been somebody who's interested in how things work and as a child, spent a lot of time with my dad, people watching. Um, he was very much into just observing people and their attitudes, the way they, they work with each other. But I'm not <laughs> a politics guy. Like, I enjoy it, I think, to a certain extent. I understand it decently well. But I love policy way more than I love politics. And, you know. So
1: just just for, gosh, even for my own clarification, can you, can you distinguish between those two?
0: Yeah, easy. So if you take the the root word for politics, going back to Latin and Greek, it just means citizen. It's that simple. It means what do, what do citizens or the polity what do they do to make decisions for the community? Um, policy is not so much the arranging of priorities as it is what are the priorities. Like what are the issues that are deep down and involved? What are the things that people who are thoughtful are considering when they when they deal with with uh, complex uh, societies and communities, um, priorities. How do they really think deeply about these issues? And then politics is kind of like, okay, well, we've thought about it. Now, what are we going to do about it? Right. So, I think policy is a it's a principle based way of looking at the universe and at our country and at everything we do. Um, politics is the transactional part of that and politics is infused in everything we do. And when people say to me, I hate politics, you know, politicians are the worst. I'm like, that's fine, but you're implicating yourself. I mean, we're all politicians in some way, whether we decide to be a part of the system or think that we're reserving our votes for, you know, somewhere else or protesting our protests, actually have political impacts. Our, uh, not voting has political impact. Mm-hmm. Um, our voting in small ways has impact. I, we vote every day. We vote on what we want to eat for breakfast, where we want to go, what kind of car we want to drive, what kind of fuel we use, what kind of clothes we wear, where those clothes come from. You mm-hmm. know, I would go on and on and on. Every single decision that we make every single day is infused in politics. So you can either let other people make decisions about you in your life or you can jump up and make them yourself. And so that's something Mm. like, that's a philosophical sort of conversation, but somebody who's really tuned that in for me is Thomas Mm. Sowell. One of the most impactful books I ever read um, was Visions of the Anointed by Thomas Sowell years ago. And it wasn't Mm. until after college, I think it was married even at the time when I read it. And it just made sense. A lot of people feel like politicians are out To try to find solutions and you'll have a lot of politicians say that i will solve the fill in the blank the homeless crisis the housing crisis the mental illness crisis the energy crisis whatever it is i will make peace (laughs) but what it comes down to is there's no solution there's only alternatives and when you make a decision it has impacts all the way around and often those impacts um, aren't seen uh, and maybe not Uh, may not be felt but they are they're real and they exist and anybody who spends more than two seconds thinking about a major decision in their life realizes that when you make a consequential decision that there are millions of things fall into place once that happens
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: but our lives are so routine we don't think about them that deeply Mm -hmm. so it's just reflexive in life so again sorry about to be so uh, philosophical there but I really think that love if it. <laughs> people understood policy and politics, they would get. They'd step back a little bit and realize, okay, maybe I need to spend some more time thinking about things. Maybe you know, taking my kid to soccer practice and doing the laundry, cooking dinner—again, important things. Shopping, you know, for school supplies, all that stuff is important. But have you thought deeply about what that means for the rest of your life and how it impacts different things? And most people don't. They want to let the experts take care of it. And I think yeah. uh, if you want to live in an all-guard here, somewhere where really smart people, a few rule everybody else. It's great. You'll, Do that. <laughs> yeah, you'll get, you'll get uh, some sort of servitude. And your freedom will be diminished. And you'll have less say about what goes
1: on in your life. And that's not the kind of guy I want to be. So I did not even answer your question. No, right? you to- so, you totally did, but this is, is what you touched on is almost a, a bit of mindfulness. It's like how mindful of the decisions are, are, that we make every day? How mindful of, of those are we like, okay, I have a choice today. I can either have, you know two cups of coffee or one. And what are the ramifications of that decision? to my health, to my focus, to my work. Okay. So now what are the trade-offs? Um, I, I might be more focused from, 8am to 10am and then I'm going to start to crash and then I'm going to need another one. So there's an addiction consequence, uh, on the negative side and the positive side, I'm going to have really good focus for two hours. So you have to weigh the the cost and the benefit. Obviously that is a, a seemingly innocuous example, but it, for somebody else, it might not be there. They might be trying to quit caffeine. They might have to quit caffeine, and that that's going to have again that that one decision will be more impactful for them than it will be for somebody else. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. What are the trade offs? You you mentioned that um, you know we might not see some of the ramifications of our decisions, uh, but right. some of the policy decisions we make we may not feel, but somebody else will. You know, and are we considering those people? right? Like, who are we considering? Are we considering the whole larger community? What, what, what's the size of the community we're considering? I think we talk a lot about that in our program, right? At SPP, at the School of Public Policy, is like, the more local we get, the easier it is to be involved and to um, make the decisions that are right for the, you know, for that local community. The larger we get in the polis or the city-state, it's going to be impossible. You have too many people with too many factions, right? Like Federalist Papers. There's too many things going on to consider and try to make a decision for everybody, at least in this country. That's that's not um, unicultural. You know, we are multicultural. We have different religions, different opinions. And to make these unilateral decisions for everybody, it just doesn't work.
0: Well, it's very difficult in a state like California, where you have 40 million people and a lot of different opinions about how things should happen. And and we're at a crossroads of a lot of different, as you said, cultures and regions, ethnicities, races, ideas, religions. Um, When you have 40 million people, that's a lot of people going different directions all the time. So there has to be some sort of commonality, right? And when you develop a priority, you develop a pathway and in order to get to that priority, you've got to figure out the steps along the way. And that often comes through discussions like budgets, right? Budgets are probably the best uh, form of identifying our priorities that we can have. If you're somebody that likes to eat out a lot, it will be reflected in your budget. If you're somebody who really cares about travel, you'll, that will be reflected in your budget. If you care about education, that will be reflected in your budget. Um, we do the same thing across the board and... Sometimes it just seems really silly. Like it's not that big of a deal, but when we make decisions and we have trade-offs, it will eventually us down a path where our, either our decisions become more expansive or more restrictive, depending on those kinds of decisions in which way we go. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm stepping back. I'm I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a father of five. I've been happily married for 22 years, almost. Um, I look around and see what's happening in our country, and our state, and I'm not satisfied with the kinds of decisions that people have made. And a lot of decisions that, that we work around are based off, you know, traditions, conventions, mores, customs. Um, and when you start to break those things down, you break down the, the things that have been built over centuries or even millennia, you now have to construct an entirely new system to work with that. And when you have millions and millions of people trying to construct a brand new system all at the same time because they did not like the old one guess what that that guess what that plane won't fly all the time and i think that's where we're at california our our minds have become so open that our brains have fallen out and there's got to be some (laughs) amount of boundary control where we make decisions based upon some of the good thought you know good and thoughtful things of the past and that means holding on to some Institutions or traditions or conventions that are important, even if we don't know why they're there. It's the old uh, why was this fence built? Don't tear it down until you know why it was built. And Mm -hmm. we have instead spent the last couple of years tearing fences down like crazy and wondering why everything is in disarray and chaos.
1: Yeah. You touched on something that I'm curious about. You said, you know, we have to find the commonality, like what, especially in California with so many different cultures and um, religions and races, what is our commonality? What do you see the commonality in California?
0: So California is a part of this mythical land that we call a dream, right? It's a a place that a lot of people come to. It's bounties and resources. It's magnificent. It stretches for thousands of miles and has uh, every imaginable kind of feature and resource in it. And with that, you get a lot of people who are dreamers, right? The Californian dream, Californian dreaming. I mean, you, you fill it in. Everybody who comes to California expects as they drive across that state line that the Beach Boys will be singing, California Dream <laughs> or the Moms and Papas. Like that's kind of the thing that everybody considers. But California is a piece of America, which was based and built upon a, a, a natural law, constitution and declaration of independence. And a whole bunch of history that is complex and challenging and interesting. But where people came to fulfill the greatest ideal was the expanse of the, of the Western frontier. People traveled thousands of miles at the beginning to, you know, go traverse over the deserts and the plains and mountains, um, you know, terrible weather conditions to make it to one of the most beautiful places on God's green earth. And they settle here and they settle here in mass is one of my favorite things to do is go on YouTube and look for that video that shows the population of cities or states. Mm. And over, it's a longitudinal thing, you know, back to the 1600s or whatever. And so it's all on the East coast and Virginia and Massachusetts or whatever. And then it, it moves and then it hits post 1945, or the world war two, the baby boomers. And all of a sudden after the war stops, you just see California just go and just, just like blow out. Explode. Everybody. It explodes and why not? I mean, this place used to be the area where people came to fulfill incredible dreams, build great things, innovate. And we still do a lot of that here, but we're at a place now where you don't have to be in California to do those things. And a lot of people that are here feel locked in and there's no sort of expansion. It's kind of a dreary world now, um, almost dystopian. In some measure. Mm. Uh, I almost feel like we're living out Ayn Rand's um, Atlas Shrugged book. If you've ever read that, it's this kind of this the society comes to a screeching halt at end because of the people that just consume it and don't produce. And mm. that's where we're at right now.
1: Mm. Interesting.
0: Well, um- sorry, that has nothing to do with it to deal with what we're going to talk about today.
1: No, it does. It has. And this is this is a conversation. I, I have no agenda for this. I mean, obviously, we want to hear about um, your agenda and, and um, your campaign, but I, I we got plenty of time for that. And so I'm in no rush. Uh, we can get to that. And um, so how did you get you said you were curious as a child about people, right? So how did that lead into policy? So I went a
0: group as a kid in Denver, Colorado. Um, I spent a few years as a Latter-day Saint missionary in New York, came back, went to Brigham Young University, got a graduate or a bachelor's degree in English there, met my wife, got married, and then she said to me, okay, now what? (laughs) Like, like it's awesome. I married a multi-hundreder, but um,
1: (laughs) what on earth are you
0: going to do to pay for life? And I thought about what does somebody with an English degree do? I loved writing. I loved reading. I loved thinking about, you know, the greatest literature ever put out by mankind, but I hadn't thought about, okay, what was going to do? One of the things I wanted to do was actually be an elementary school principal. Mm -hmm. My elementary school principal, Arkansas Elementary in Aurora, Colorado, Jerry Lemons, was the nearest uh, man towards close to God on earth. He just he ran that school with great benevolence and just I was wonderful. And I wanted to be like that man. Um, And he never did. I've never told him this. Um, I've said this a few other times, but I wanted to be him. But then I realized that there might be other opportunities. I thought about law school. And then I stumbled upon this concept called a master's of public policy. <laughs> and I actually applied to law schools, got accepted back East, and I got accepted to a few public policy schools. And one day I get this letter in the mail from um, 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 Mike Shires, who is still at the school of public policy, and said, hey, here you've applied. I would love to have you here. And it was a handwritten note. And I looked at the picture of that campus <laughs> and, I'm, and I thought, Oh, my goodness, you know, and I was, I, a- I was in Denver, Colorado at the time. I was working as a school teacher, a fourth grade teacher, um, thinking about education. And um, I just said, OK, we're going to go. And my wife's from Bakersfield. So we wanted to be closer to home and family. And we made the transition. And it was a great decision. And so when I got to to uh, the school of public policy, my concept of policy was like everybody else's right now. It's like, OK, well, I don't really know. <laughs> you know, like, what does policy mean? But then, what I loved about the curriculum there, and Dean Peterson has continued this on, is this this really deep, uh, you know, kind of diving into all the hard questions of life, the great books, the mm-hmm. the, the the issues. And I remember um, Gordon Lloyd, professor Gordon Lloyd, who was um, an immigrant to this country, but probably knows the Constitution and the founding fathers and documents probably better than almost everybody that's alive. Uh, The man was just a walking encyclopedia. And he taught me a lesson. And actually, it's a lesson I learned and kept for the rest of my life. I spent another 17 years in the legislature, uh, working as a consultant, as a legislative director, and as a chief of staff. And he taught this one lesson in his class I'll never forget. He said, there are three questions every policymaker should ask. One is, what should government do? And most people never ask that question. So I was stunned. I was like, "Oh man, I could write this down." You know, what should government do? That makes you think about again all of the the founding documents, the framework of the Constitution, mm-hmm. uh, you know, statutory law, uh, what courts you know have decided, customs and traditions. So I thought, okay, that's a good question. That was number one. Number two was, if you've decided that government should do something,
1: right?
0: Well, what level should you do that? <laughs> again. Another question that most people don't even think about. They're like, well, automatically it should be Congress. Congress should do everything. Well, no, read the Constitution. The Congress should actually do very little. Right. And state legislature should still do even very little. But most major decisions should be your local government. Um, and then the three is once your government should do something, at what level it should do it, how much of it should it do? 100%? 50%? 10%? 1%? And again, these are all, it's its its a, a guiding framework for um, providing a proportionate response to government in our lives. And I took those lessons to heart, so much so that when I was a legislative staffer, um, and people would come to the office and ask, well, you know, your boss could do this kind of bill. And I would say, okay, well, let's walk through the metric, right? And once you got to about the second or third question, their eyes were kind of, I'm like wet open thinking, oh my goodness! I've never thought about that. As well. mm. I've just always assumed that government does everything you know right and well, the smartest people <laughs> in government. And I'd have to dispute <laughs> one of those things, you know. So I get to the public policy place because I really love ideas. I really love finding and seeking after truth, mm-hmm. and I really love beautiful things. Like I love beautiful things, and we have such a beautiful state that's just being completely crushed because we are not providing our fellow citizens with a platform, with a foundation that's sturdy and durable. And instead we've given a whole bunch of these kids and um, uh, an education that's subpar and is not reflective of the premier education for decades we had after people flooded to the state. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's, you know, kind of my, my history in a nutshell, there's a whole bunch of stuff in between that, but I also have a kindergartner and I have an 18 year old who's just graduating from high school next month. And I look at their futures and I think, okay, my oldest son's life is pretty much set before him. Now he's going to make decisions. My kindergartner, I have a lot to do. She's six <laughs> years old. I've got, I've got a lot Run of the time gamut. to figure this out, but she now has an example too of her older brother watching And go through the process and Mm -hmm. then her other siblings well they all have now a pattern and hopefully i as a parent have done something decently well to set them on the right path but every day i'm concerned about it did i do the right thing did i do enough did i provide them enough thoughtful exercises about these things have i given them the opportunity to exercise their um choice and uh, be accountable (laughs) agents you know it's a tough question for a parent
1: so you mentioned something about being interested in beautiful things. And I'm so curious about that because we've discussed this in some classes um, this past semester about what can be what what do we know objectively? And I feel like in a way, objective beauty, I don't want to say it's under attack, but God forbid something is more beautiful than something else, right? That we are objectively defining beauty. I mean obviously I'm in the health industry. So, um, thinking of fitness magazines, right. And then we're putting a very heavy set woman on the cover of a fitness magazine and saying, this is healthy. And I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't mean she's not beautiful or she's not, um, a lovely person, but that's not healthy. We can objectively say that isn't that someone overweight and probably is going to have a, a host of health issues. And, and the same goes with beauty. It's almost as if like, beautiful women have to be shamed and saying like not everybody can be like that. Well, of course not. But we we put them on the covers because we're striving for something, right? We all want to feel like we're surrounded by beauty. And that's almost like a taboo thing these days to admit like there's a fine balance I think particularly for women for accepting their body shape because there has been this overemphasis on looking a particular way by the media and all that kind of stuff. But I also think that comes from inside. Like I can look at a beautiful woman, admire her and know, well, I ain't never going to be that. And that's okay. Or I can, I can aspire, you know, with a woman on the cover of a fitness magazine, particularly that's trying to promote health. I can look at that and say, wow, that's something to aspire to. I may never get there but that's going to motivate me to go for that run or that walk or eat a little better. And it's almost like we're cutting that down. And in that way, um, maybe cutting the beautiful down, it's like we strive for nothing. It's almost like we're working towards the lowest common denominator.
0: Um, So I really think that the beautiful can be an objective thing. A lot of the old classic writers used to think deeply about the sublime and the awe-inspiring stuff you know beautiful mountains or landscapes um, things people and I feel like people can look around and actually objectively notice patterns that are beautiful that are inspiring that that draws to to be better people all the time Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be just things Um, it can be it can be cups it can be thoughts or um you know ideology really pursuing a faith tradition you want it to to feel like it matters like it's it it moves you to a place of of awe Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I want for all that's what i want for my kids I want them to follow those things that are virtuous and lovely um, that are that are beautiful they are mm-hmm. good
1: mm-hmm. and if
0: they can do that i think they'll be happier in life and i think actually most people be happier in life when you think about misery misery loves company right if you think mm-hmm. about terrible or ugly things uh brutus architecture playing <laughs> like drives me mad when i see beautiful cathedrals or churches or temples that that inspire something towards heaven or lofty goals um when i see a beautiful car that clearly is had a lot you know go into that car to to make it effectively run and 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 have power and and move people when I when I go to the ocean instead of the beach and just think about the the immense the immensity of of that place. I mean there's just so many things. I could go on philosophically about this for a long time, but beautiful things should be pursued. And mm-hmm. California is a beautiful place with beautiful people but it shouldn't also be a vain place. And I think there's Mm. a difference
1: Mm -hmm. that
0: when that beauty is so self-centered and not used for, I think the glory of God um, Mm. and for increasing intellect and intelligence, then it it's lost. It's all, it's lost its meaning. It's lost its value. Mm. I love
1: what you say about like, um, beautiful cars right And now everything seems just to be so utilitarian that that that's the only focus and like you said beauty should I think be used towards a higher good for sure um but everything just seems to be so functional and, and utilitarian like and done for you right like I go to the I went to wash my hands in this restaurant And you know how they have the automatic faucets. It's magnetic and the water automatically turns on, right? And I'm like, okay, so you've taken away that agency from me (laughs) from turning the water on myself. And then it automatically blew air out, which I wasn't expecting (laughs) to dry my hands. So the water turned off, you know, the the water was timed as to how much I needed or how much it it thought I should use. And then the, the dryer automatically went on. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is getting away from from beauty and more of the utilitarian thing, but it's like, oh, now they're telling me like how much I can use and how, <laughs> it's like, oh geez. This well, yeah, crazy. when you can
0: control everybody's decisions too, then things are less beautiful. Yeah, And that's when people start to deviate from the norm. Mm. Um, another place that we don't spend a lot of time talking about is deviant. If you ever have something that's individualistic or, you know, particular to a certain condition or framework, I, I think those things should, you know, be admired and and, um, and inspiring from time to time. But I don't think that everything should look like that thing. But it should right. operate within a framework that everybody can appreciate and, and value that. It's when people try to take that framework and change it dramatically that the, you there's a deviation again from the norm now there's a natural bell cor- curve in all aspects of life right um, there's people that are really good at some things and terrible at others and that's all right like I, I can um, I can do policy and writing and analysis all day long I, I love that stuff um, but if you ask me to sing a song or play an instrument forget it it's like I, <laughs> it's not gonna happen right um, am I gonna be a fitness model nope is not going to happen. <laughs> Could I do it if I wanted to? I'm sure. But my priorities are different. My right. priorities, my talent, right. skills, and abilities are different. And so I should recognize those things. But when I take those talents and I try to move them or move other people away from their talents, skills, and abilities, and that's a problem. We should be inspiring other people to really develop what God has given and mm-hmm. to do great and wonderful things. That's why, again, beauty is so important because they can see the beauty within themselves
1: mm-hmm. and they can
0: aspire to something higher instead of groveling at the baseness of everybody else, the lobsters in the, in the bottom of, of a bucket. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of where we are. I think is society right now, especially social, social media has made a lot of beautiful things fake mm-hmm. and a lot of fake things seem real. And mm-hmm. takes a certain amount of discernment to determine between the real and the counterfeit. And it, those are hard, hard concepts.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I know we could wax poetic about some of this stuff all day long. And this is, this is the stuff I do love. I love the philosophical. I love what makes people tick. I love thinking about big ideas. Um, but eventually, we have to take those big ideas and bring them down to the very particulars, right? Right. Um, so you you touched on a bunch of times education and that is kind of where you've landed right professionally and and personally and and where you put your time and focus. So why why education?
0: So I think everything begins and ends at home. Mm-hmm. Um, including education. And the ability for a parent to make decisions about their children and their future is inherent in being a parent. Um, we as parents don't usually, and again, this is where the norm you know sets in, we don't usually hand over our parental responsibilities to anybody else for any reason. Now, there may be people, this village of sorts, that jump in and help out at certain parts, or the greater family may have to step in in certain circumstances circumstances the death of a parent or a loss of a job or a change in cir- circumstance or maybe there's just terrible terrible parents out there that's always a possibility, um and it seems to be more of a regular possibility as well forward. <laughs> but but parents ultimately are in charge of their kids they own their kids they're theirs yeah and some people really have a hard time with this concept thinking no you know we need to we need to have a greater societal you know f- conversation about who, you know, what things parents are teaching their kids. They're they're terrible things. Well, parents may teach their kids terrible things. In fact, not may, they they do. And no parent is perfect, but who are you or who are these other people that don't have your kids to tell you who and what and how you should teach them? Hmm. So education to me is of like ultimate, it's the ultimate issue for, for me as a parent. I can remember my son was in kindergarten He just got this new teacher, brand new. She's amazing. And it was kind of rocky at the beginning because we were expecting another teacher who retired suddenly. And then another teacher was going to take his place. She didn't appear on the first day of school. So we get this new teacher and we loved her. She was amazing. Mm. And about two months into the school year, my son comes home to my wife and says, hey, I just met my new teacher today. She said, oh, you already have a teacher. Said, so, no, this new one came in to introduce herself today. And my wife called me in tears. Again, my first son in kindergarten. We're not sure how this whole thing works. It's been years since we've been in school. Mm-hmm. It's a regular public school like everybody else is going to, or most everybody else is going to. And I remember calling the principal saying, What is going on? Well, it turns out there was another teacher in a nearby school in the district who was a part of the union, had a ton of tenure, like 25 years in the system, but was terrible. And they had to get rid of her from that school. And because she had tenure and because she was a member of the union, they were willing to throw out our brand new, excellent teacher, a young black woman who was amazing. This old haggard union um, teacher that didn't want to teach. And Mm -hmm. we made enough hay about it and got enough parents, you know, outraged that kept the original teacher. Um, And it Mm -hmm. was a blessing. But I saw all of a sudden really quickly how important education decisions are. That's one example. Another example was I volunteered a lot in the community. I do a lot of, you know, different advocacy, service groups, clubs, church things, you know, whatever, you name it. I do all that kind of stuff. And what I found is where a school is functioning properly, the community works well. Mm. And there is a direct correlation between a good school system and a functioning community. And that includes things like truancy and crime. It includes uh, behaviors and patterns in, in driving and transportation. It includes hiring people and having um, young citizens that are out able to do to do good things. And it doesn't all have to come through the public school system, but the public school system is the political jurisdiction by which most people facilitate education in our communities. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: and so I would often. You know, really struggle those ideas, and I actually ran for school board in 2008 in Sacramento. And I remember knocking on people's doors and they said, "Well, we don't have kids in the public schools, or they've all graduated, or we never had kids, or our kids are in the private school, or we homeschool our kids. So why would I care?" And I would I always say to them, "Well, okay, do you care about crime? Do you care about your taxes? Yeah. Do you taxes yeah. are going to the system. Do you care about the condition of your neighborhoods?" Uh, do, you care, do you care about what kind of businesses are hiring or not hiring based upon these kids' talents uh, and skills that they either got or did not get in school? And once people thought about that, they step back and realize okay, education does mean something. So I have been in education policy since teaching fourth grade 20 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. I have
0: done uh, 20 years in legislature. I worked for a short period of time in the Department of Finance doing education budgets for those kids that were incarcerated in the system. Um, I have spent two tours at two different think tanks working on a lot of issues, among them education. Right now, my current job is to do education policy full time. And I was one of the principal architects of the School Choice Initiative this last year that a lot of people um, thought about and even signed the petition to get on the ballot. Unfortunately, it didn't get on the ballot for November, but it's still an issue that I am very passionate about. Um, and I want to make sure that parents have the ability to make the best decision about their kids and their education and their future and their opportunities that they can.
1: What, what do you have to say about like the inequities of education, right? Like these inner city schools that don't seem to have the resources, um, because education is basically funded by property tax dollars. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Well, when people say that the resources, um, that's a usual argument of the, the far left. Mm-hmm. Um, all they have to do is actually look at the budgets in the school districts. If you were to go to most schools in the state, they're, they're paying somewhere around twenty one dollars to $22,000 per kid per year. If you were to take that money to a private school system, that buys you a really nice private school education. A really nice private school education.
1: So across the board, it doesn't matter. So what you're saying is across the board? On average. No. Okay. Even if, even in the wealthier communities, they're not getting Yes, more. because
0: again, property taxes are just a baseline. So if you think about a bucket as the education budget
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in that bucket, the first monies that go into that are the property taxes. So in wealthier areas, that bucket fills up faster mm-hmm. than it would in a poor neighborhood.
1: Mm-hmm. That doesn't
0: matter. The bucket's still the same, generally the same size. There are different mm-hmm. nuances from place to place. But generally that bucket is the same size for every kid. Mm. And so the state will come in and for those places that can't raise their revenue through property taxes, they do it through what they call Proposition 98, which is general fund dollars that go into
1: mm. our education system. Okay. So
0: there's a, a guy who's great, uh, Dr. Lance Azumi out of Pacific Research Institute. He's written a ton on this. He wrote a book years ago called, Not As Good As You Think where he basically took every single school district in the state. There's 944 school districts in in California. He took all those school districts and compared it with, you know, home values, and neighborhood tax receipts and all that stuff. And then he correlated their, their, their test scores and academic um, standards and found out that it didn't matter if you lived in Beverly Hills or Marin or, you know, Orange County, your school was likely to be determined on the quality of, teachers and administration in those schools, uh, no matter where you live. And you could live in Bakersfield or in Sausalito or somewhere else, and still have a high quality public education without living in the wealthy suburbs.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: So it's But <laughs> most people wanna take the premise that we don't spend enough money on our education. The governor just put out a budget that last year's budget was $126 billion, be, it, be with a billion. Um, which is larger than 28 other states' total budgets for the whole state. Wow. That was just for education last year. And we're actually losing students in the state of California. They just counted last month back in April. Well, actually, they counted in October. It It took the public schools six months to finally, you know, complete the numbers, the exercise. But they reported that we lost another 110,000 students, in addition to the 150,000 or 160,000 lost last year. So over 270,000 kids have disappeared from the system, meaning that there are still more resources going into these schools with fewer students. So it's not a lack of resources.
1: When you say lost, they're just dropping out. We don't they're unaccounted for.
0: They're unaccounted for. They could have gone to private school or homeschool. They could have mm. dropped out entirely, mm. or they could have moved out of the state and just gone mm-hmm. somewhere else. Okay. But there are there are less than six million kids in the in the in the school system, public school system, but there are about 6.6 million um, kids ages five to eighteen in the state. So a good chunk of those, you know, six, seven hundred thousand either in private school or homeschool. Um, and the rest are in the public schools, including charter schools, which are also public schools.
1: Mm-hmm. So, explain that. Explain what a charter school is to people.
0: So, you have your regular school districts, which provide an education for anybody in the neighborhood. Basically, it's if you live in the neighborhood, that's your district neighborhood school, you go to it. Um, some schools divide boundaries up and grade levels and things differently. But basically, if you're in elementary school, K through five, K through six, you have the opportunity to go to this elementary school. Well, you might have an open school district, which allows you to pick maybe two or three different elementary schools to go to, provided you can transport your kids there. Um, same thing with middle school and high school. Well, a charter school comes in and says, okay, we don't think the options here are as good as we want. We want parents to have some choices uh, and opportunities for the kids. And so we're gonna produce, provide a charter school. We're gonna ask the school district um, or the county um, to, or the state at one point in time to charter a different kind of model. So like Montessori is a good example. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those on the state. That's a, mostly a charter school, though there are a lot of private Montessoris as well. Um, maybe they want a technical uh, school. Maybe they want a military academy. Governor Brown, when he was, um, I think, mayor of Oakland or after, he started some military academies in that part of the area. Uh, Those were charter schools. In other words, charter schools still get public funds. They still get the same public funds, except they don't get as much as a regular neighborhood school. So they get probably 75, 80 cents on the dollar. And they have to find their own facilities, their own buildings, um, classrooms. The teachers are generally not unionized. That's not true of all charter schools, but it's true of many of them. And so they have a little bit more freedom. Uh, to do different things they're not regulated the same ways as regular um, schools and that's a blessing that's the whole point to have a charter school that has different kinds of rules that operates in as long as the kids can meet the standard then the charter school should continue to remain open
1: so it's more governed by the locality right The, the parents that get together and say this is what we want for our children there's enough of us to do it let's start start a school
0: yes And the school board has some say on that, right? If they don't approve a charter, then the charter school won't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But if a charter school fails its students, and this is another conversation we can have, a lot of people say, well, you know, charter schools steal the best of the brightest of the kids, um, which my retort is, well, they don't, one. Um, Two, if they did, that means you have more resources and teachers to teach those that need your help.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, in
0: the public schools but three they actually compete for any kid that can that, that wants that kind of education that's alternative from the regular neighborhood school and so if a charter school fails parents pull their kids out and it closes mm-hmm. when a public school fails the government sends it more money and we continue to chain our kids to these schools and their failure
1: mm. So what you're saying is money's not the Band-Aid, <laughs> just to throw m- never, more money at a school. yeah.
0: Money's not the Band-Aid. We've done studies. There have been done studies um, across the state of California where if you take the exact same neighborhood and you have a charter school and a public school next door to each other, um, L.A., San Diego, Bay Area doesn't matter, almost nine times out of 10, if not more, the charter school is going to outperform the neighborhood public school. And again, they're both public schools. But the charter public school is going to have flexibility. Um, it's not going to have to contend and deal with teachers' unions most of the time. It's going to have the ability to really push and challenge these kids. And when you have teachers that aren't unionized, guess what? They'll stick around later. They'll they'll have after school programs at work. They'll uh, be willing to take extra periods to help with homework. In most public school districts, where you have a unionized workforce, to have a, a memorandum of understanding or a, a bargained agreement and contract. They will limit their hours of instruction down to the minute, down to the second. They will limit the amount of classes they're, you know, allowed to do or expected to do. They will they will limit the different kind of extracurricular activities they have. Um, so, a lot of teachers go into teaching because they want kids and there are thousands and tens of thousands of amazing and incredible teachers out there there are also a lot of really bad teachers and the teachers union does one thing it protects the worst of the worst Mm -hmm. there are other states that don't have teachers unions They're able to negotiate some challenging situations with principals that might be obtuse or hard to deal with or difficult situations within within schools. They're able to do that in ways that don't require a union. But in California, the union runs everything in our public school system. And so those schools that have public employee unions often struggle the most with their problems. And look at LAUSD. Los Angeles Unified is the poster child of failure. They went from having 750,000 kids a few years back to now they're under 400,000 students. Wow. It's a massive system. They're upside down $19 billion with a B. And it's not because they never got the money. It's because they misappropriated the money over years. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of problems that you have these massive school districts, massive bureaucracies, and not a lot of teaching going on. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned, okay, so money doesn't solve the problem. What does make a school better? Is it, like you said, like unions, obviously you're saying unions make it worse. What makes it better?
0: Parents, every Mm. single time. Mm. If you want a functioning school system, you have involved parents. You have parents who dictate um, the way that things are done, the culture of a school, Uh, discipline issues within the home specifically, making sure these kids are prepared to go to school. And when they come home from school, they're educating them. Um, I'm not suggesting every parent has to be a brilliant teacher. I am suggesting every parent has to care about their kid. And all of the other stuff that happens at the school is supplementary to what happens in the home. So if you have societies or communities where the parents are really involved, it doesn't matter their socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter if they're single parents or dual income households, it doesn't matter if they have one kid or 10 kids, if those, or if those parents are really involved and they're concerned, every school improves in that circumstance. The schools where the parents are disassociated, uh, don't connect, don't provide a lot of um, support for their kids or discipline at home. Um, are not taking care of the way that a good parent should, those schools will struggle. And no amount of school programs um, will fix those problems. They will only paper them over until they're uh, socially graduated out of that school and moved on to a different setting. And what we see right now, and in fact, the current superintendent of public construction talks about this, he talks about the, school, the prison pipeline. A lot of our schools, especially in our cities, just send these kids off. They don't graduate and when they don't graduate, they're just on this conveyor belt from kindergarten through 12th grade. They get out of the warehouse. They don't know how to behave or do anything. They've never been taught this. Their parents aren't all involved in their life. And so where do they go? It's a life of crime, which ends up in prison. Mm-hmm. And you've got drug addiction and, and mental health issues that all come along with that. There, there's a heavy amount of correlation between the stability of the family and the, the, uh, the success of a school.
1: So how do we... Change that pipeline. How do we? I mean, I know what you're. I, I get exactly what you're saying. Is that it's up to the family. But what if two parents are working, or like, what do we do with those kids? These parents aren't good parents or aren't involved. Like, how do we get them out of this cycle um, via education?
0: Well, uh, again, this is not something that one person in elected office fixes. Mm. The cultural issue its something we have to step back from, mm. you know, years ago, there was the uh, no child left behind initiative, but mm-hmm. the George, you know, W. Bush situation before that you had Reagan, who had his programs to develop the national um, report card for schools. Uh, you had different initiatives with Clinton and with Obama and whatever. But if you go back to what um, Carter did when he got elected, he made a deal, a deal with the unions to federalize education policy and it's been worse ever since mm-hmm. um, so i would say first you got to get the federal government entirely out of education like entirely 100% mm-hmm. there should be $1 that goes into or from the federal government that's related to it's uh, related to k through 12 education except for my only caveat is those parents that that deal in a department of defense or military background that need that kind of stuff that would oh, right. be the exception to the rule. And it's a completely different conversation.
1: Those who are working for the government within. Right. And and,
0: and are traveling in far-flung places. That, right. That's the school that they right. do. Right. Um, even then there's other alternatives, but that for which, you know, we want to take care of our men and women that serve our country. I'm totally happy to do that. Yeah. That said, we shouldn't send money to Washington, D.C. to have Congress turn around and send it back with a whole bunch of strings attached. Right. Right. You know, in California, we send billions of dollars to to D.C. every year. Well, why? Like three or four middlemen can have their hands on it and tell us what to do with our own money. If we really want to improve things, then it comes down to a state better allocation of those funds. It's not about just getting rid of a bigger, bigger bureaucracy, which I'm in favor of, uh, of. But it's making sure that the lower local levels have more resources to do better things with. And frankly, if you're a local school district, and you're released of a lot of obligations and strings, and you're able to make decisions based upon your community, that relationship with your parents and the educational desires they have will change dramatically and overnight. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things. The second is, there really are no parental advocates within our state uh, Department of Education or within the Superintendent of Public Instructions Office. And whenever they do any sort of curriculum remodel or framework, uh, whenever they talk about discipline issues or audits, charter schools, parents are almost invariably left out of the conversation. So I would add them back in. And the other piece is most of our budgets within the state bureaucracy are not focused on the kids. So I do a kids first audit of the state departments and, and bureaucracy's budgets as it pertains to K through 12 education and work with the legislative analyst office and the state auditor to say, okay, what can be improved and fixed from here on out? There's a lot of things we could do to make sure that the money gets to the places it need to go. And then we also have a weird credentialing problem with our teachers, where uh, after about a year and a half, a teacher is tenured, um, and they may or may not have the skills or capabilities to, to lead a classroom. Um, let's get more time to work itself out, and let's not make the credential that hard to get either. So they spend all this time and maybe a a state school going through their teacher credentialing program that may or may not actually do all that good with the with the, the styles and pedagogy of teaching. But what if you have you know a chemist who she spent thirty years in the in the industry and she's retiring. Her kids are off you know living their lives. Her husband's doing his own thing, and she just wants to go teach school. She wants to teach high school chemistry or AP chemistry or whatever. But she doesn't need a salary. She's got a ton of money. She's retired. Um, She just wants a job and something to do. I would love to have a way that we could give those kinds of people credentials. Um, There's lots of opportunities in other states to do this. And then the other part, as I described earlier, is we've got to stop this last in first out policy, where we bring in good, good teachers who are kicked out and kicked to the curb when budgets get tight. And we keep our old senior teachers just because they're older and senior now if we have good teachers around for a long time you want to keep those right you're going to pay more money for them but if we're just kicking out teachers simply because they're the you know the last one in the first one out
1: Mm. we have a
0: problem and all those issues would begin to address the severe and systemic problems we have within our institutional education system.
1: it's interesting you mentioned about credentials because i've thought about teaching and um you know i think i told you i applied for uh, to be a tutor here at a at a local christian academy um whether it's health or even fitness you know whatever type of curriculum they have or english and i just don't want to go through like i don't need another degree right i don't feel like i need a particular education degree obviously there should be some screening process right um right to make sure I'm on the up and up, but I, have thought about it. And and that's why I feel like it would have to be private institutions. And I feel like what you're saying is a barrier to entry, right? There's a lot of people like me or like that chemist that you're talking about. And then their only option would be private schools because I don't think they're allowed to hire, right? If you're a private school, you can hire whoever you want or do they have to have the same sort of credentialing?
0: Yeah. I mean, the credentialing is a little bit different in some places. Um, some private schools may hire quote unquote tutors rather than actual teachers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They may be the most brilliant, incredible teachers on the planet. Yeah. And, and why wouldn't we want to hire them? I worked as a tutor when I was at grad school
1: mm-hmm. and I got
0: paid a decent amount of money to go and basically fix all the things that, you know, teachers messed up during the day. Yeah. Um, and, and again, these kids were still going to public schools. They were still doing their thing. A lot of them were actually actors when I was down in Malibu, they were actor kids Mm -hmm. that weren't in school that often or the teachers didn't care about them so their parents would pay a good chunk of money for me to go through and make sure that they got all the stuff they needed and I didn't have a credential Mm -hmm. um now I'm not saying I made them brilliant or anything but I I didn't see that it was necessary for me to have a credential to be a teacher Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: um, I think there's a good conversation about licensing requirements in general but if a if a parent or if a student doesn't like a professor at a college or university, uh, people find out about that really quickly. You know, you yeah. have your rate my professors and all kind of stuff. Now, there are people that are malicious and do terrible things and, and, and lie about others. Those kinds of things you have to overcome, of course. But I've also had professors that other people don't like that I enjoyed uh, precisely for the reasons that other people didn't like. Them. Right, they right. They challenged right, you. Right. They were innovative. They thought outside the box. Yeah. Um, they made you think about things. So again, we shouldn't just be hiring and firing teachers because people don't like them, but we shouldn't also be hiring teachers just because they, they did some course and passed some tests.
1: Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think the, base, the basic level of education needs to be for everyone, right? And like, then how much do we tailor education to individual talents of children? And is that possible? Like where I grew up, Um, we had vocational school, right? So the first half of their day was the basics, math, or I think English, I don't even know, but the second half of their day, they were in masonry or electricity. And um, is there any of that in California's public school system? What's the role of trying to find the right fit for every student, knowing that not every student is gonna be a chemist, not every student is gonna be an English major. Um, How do you tailor education to children with different capacities and talents? Well, I think
0: that's a really, really good question and it's very broad. Because Mm -hmm. what happens is is every community is going to have different expectations of their kids. Mm
1: -hmm. If you go
0: to a a highly populated Asian community in the Bay Area, the the level of academic rigor is going to be massive in that area. Mm -hmm. Um, If kid is not getting straight A's and in the spelling bee and doing, you know, college calculus their freshman year in high school, then they're a failure, right? Um, and if you're in some farm community, which we live in, and you're not able to get out and do some basic welding and, and mechanic stuff, um, you know, uh, and, and work on the farm and know when to plant and when to water, uh, then you're a failure there too. So there has to be some sort of happy medium that most communities can say, okay, this this suggests that we have a an educated populace. I don't know that our current K through 12 education system actually meets that. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of conversation about what should the standard look like. If you were to take most of the kids in in California high schools and give them the elementary school ex- exam from the early 1900s, I, I doubt you'd have 5% of those pass that exam. You have most kids mm-hmm. in the state of California, they can't diagram a sentence count change or, or do a small analysis of a short story. And again, I don't think the kids are morons or you know idiots. I just think that they've been given a poor education or a poor substitute for an education. And we just socially advanced them along the way. We put them again on this conveyor belt in a garden and just hope that they meet these metrics all along the way. So if I were to be in charge, king of the world one day, I'd say, you know what? Let's get rid of the whole standard. Let's say. What is important for our kids to be productive citizens in society, not mm-hmm. just as cogs and whatever, and not just as some sort of economic being, but as productive contributing citizens. And then every community can make that decision about what that looks like. Um, and right now we kind of have that, I and mean, the state sets some standards for these things, but every every community and school board makes decisions about curriculum and and how rigorous um, that curriculum may or may not be, and what kind of grades and, and uh, pieces of that um, uh, curriculum need to be obtained if you want to go to college. But colleges drive a lot of that stuff. But we're also at a place now where I don't even think that college is necessary for most people. Mm-hmm. I, I have a brother who who um, who uh, operates cranes and is a welder, and he works on a lathe. This guy is amazing. He hasn't one, had one day of, of college his entire life but if you were to set him on the ground and and have him walk through constructing a multi-million dollar building, he could probably do it better than most engineers fresh out of out of grad mm-hmm, school.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: he every day has to think about in practicality. Followers the same way he got kicked out of, of college um, and never really went back, went to trade school. He became a a diesel mechanic. You can sit him in front of an engine and five seconds start it up or not start up and he can diagnose it, and have it fixed and improve that engine before some grad student can, can even begin to talk about what's wrong with it. So there's a, a good amount of applied education that we need to accept and encourage in California and, and our vocational ed or queer technical education should be a higher priority for a lot of people. But just simply because our kid gets a five on the, the, uh, the the you know the Spanish AP test uh, when they go to college it doesn't really matter much because they have yeah. to most of the time retake most of this stuff and when three quarters of our kids that go to our community colleges have to do uh, remediation work because of their reading comprehension and basic writing skills that su- suggests that our standard whatever it is now is not working. And so maybe it's time like we did in the 60s to step back and have a a broader conversation about what what education looks like now that we're actually in the 21st century and Mm -hmm. the economy changes almost month to month, not even year to year anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So we have a whole different place. You have guys like Peter Thiel who are paying kids not to go to college. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have different models now where you can get a college or university education, but on the side. You do it after school or after work or, you know, um, over the years, uh, and you can do it for less than $10,000. So you're not spending one hundred twenty dollars or $200,000 on education in gender studies. It means nothing at the end of the whole thing. Um, so there are a lot of ways we could tackle this program, but it requires people actually wanting to have the conversation. And I would say most people just don't want to have
1: it. Yeah. Involvement. I mean, you touched on a couple of things, To One of my favorite books from our great books course in the first semester was Education at the Crossroads, um, which was written in the 60s, maybe Maritain. Do you remember that book? Did you have to yeah, read that more back then? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good book about, OK, what is education like what your policy professor asked you that first day of class? What's the purpose? Right. What's the purpose of government? What's the purpose of education? Is it to train somebody for a job or is it to make a good uh, member of society and and someone who can function in society at at a certain level, right? Are we pursuing the good? Are we pursuing what is the good? All that kind of stuff. So I I do feel at a certain level, there should be a moral component to education. And then we have to agree on okay, what are those moral values? And there's so many, but like you said, we have to have the conversations, right? And it and it's going to change based on locality. So that was to me that's the beauty of this country. What what the good is in the middle of Iowa is going to different going to be different, like you said, from the good in Marin County, California. Um, and then we best prepare our kids to go out and and go beyond their boundaries if they want. They don't have to stay in that county, but Um, the fact that everybody has to go on to college and grad school, I mean, it was the right thing for you. It's the right thing for me. God led me in that direction and I don't question it. Um, but it's, I don't say everybody has to go to college. I do think everybody should have a basic level of reading, like you said, so they can at any point pick up a book and educate themselves.
0: (laughs) Well, I was at the place too, where I thought, should I go and get more education, formal education after I got my master's degree? I remember my, my mentor who I loved till he died not too long ago was Bruce Hershenson and taught at Pepperdine mm. and who didn't have a college degree, by the way, but advised five United States presidents and traveled the world and was one of the most successful people in the country in government politics. In fact, sat on the board of the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Um, but I remember I said to him, should I get a PhD? And he looked at me after puffing his cigarette and he said, Lance, as Mark Twain said, don't let school get in the way of your education. Yeah, and at that moment, I really seems right. Like, I didn't need to go and get a credential or letters more letters behind my name to be better. I probably learn more off of YouTube and Twitter every day than I learned in grad school or undergrad. It's amazing the amount Mm -hmm. of information that that is distilled in some of these YouTube videos. My kids and I watch. We, you know we there's just some of these channels that we watch all the time because they're doing scientific experiments or they're mm. demonstrating things or high-speed cameras or you know philosophy issues my son and I were talking about uh, you know Plato's cave last night and this video mm. that he saw that that talked about it in 10 minutes well I spent an entire semester talking about that in in college he learned it in 10 minutes on a really well-constructed video mm. um, there's different ways we could do these really good friend who's an artist an amazing artist and he's basically on the side decided his own curriculum for art school and he sells it and so teachers can grab this curriculum they can use it in their classroom or parents can buy it and use it at home school and it doesn't take that much we can crowdsource so much and there's so much access to the best information in the world i can sit down right now after getting done with you and turn on an mit course on some crazy yes. engineering or physics conversation and get the same
1: education as the kids sitting in that classroom. I just signed up to two Hillsdale college courses for free. Yeah. Like, um, on CS Lewis and one on the constitution, even though I just went through that course in, um, in school, you know, the, um, the roots of American order, which we look at right. all that. I, I, Yes. And I agree. And I'm, and I, I agree with you. I am the type of person though, who likes to be in person, who likes to be engaged. So I, again, I think it depends on the individual. Like for me, what this program is helping me do is become a better writer, become a better critical thinker. Like it's really changed me as a person not so much like the intellect. Do you know what I'm saying? So again, I think it's different. This was my path. This is my particular journey. And I know this was the right decision for me. Is it necessary? No. I mean, I did think about getting my JD, you know, my dual JD and MPP. And I'm like, okay, what am I? I'm crazy. Now I'm just doing it to, to get it right. Just for the for the initials after my name. And I, I have enough life experience. And with this new launching pad, I think it's all I need. And I had to really check myself and like, okay, why do I want a JD as well? Um, and I, I, I wish I had known your mentor. I probably would have enjoyed him very much.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was wonderful. And he was just a man of common sense who just observed the world as we talked about earlier. And so I think that's what we need. We need more curiosity. We need more people that are willing to spend time thinking about the hard things. We need more patience and kindness. We need to be more respectful towards others and their differences of opinions. Mm -hmm. We also have to, we don't have to accept every idea that's from our direction, Uh, but we don't have to be jerks about it. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have five kids. None of them think like the other, none of Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And so it's learning about the individual. And I don't know why we think we're gonna get a great result. We send our kids our most cherished possession that we have to send them off to a school of random strangers most of the time um, and expect they're going to get an incredible experience. I, I think we should be curating those kinds of things for our children and not not excluding them from the world, but protecting them when they come home, the home should be a sanctuary, it should be a fortress. It should be a place where they're protected against all terrible things in the world. But when they're also exposed to different ideas, that they're challenged, but in ways that's appropriate for their age, for their condition, for their mental, you know, health emotionally, you know, young kids change and adapt in different ways. That's what a parent knows and understands. And when you frankly give up that authority or that ability over to a government bureaucrat or a, or a school uh, there's a certain amount of faith you have to have as a parent to make sure that's going to work out. And um, I think that faith has been eroded in the last few years, especially through the pandemic. We, what we've seen through watching over our kid's shoulders through Zoom classrooms, I think a lot of parents are saying, hold on, I did not sign up for whatever this is. Mm. So we have to fundamentally go back and, and say, okay, what is education and is what we're doing right now, Can we actually consider education? And I would say, no, it's become indoctrination. It's become fall in line and do whatever we say, check the boxes and who cares? You've actually, you know, improved or
1: enlarged your mind at all. Hmm. So I I am going to go there because you touched on it (laughs) with um, the, the so-called like don't say gay bill uh, in Florida and what is appropriate for our children and when, um where does that issue stand in California particularly? And uh is it even an issue? What's going on? Do parents care here or not? Where's the what's going on here in California? I
0: used to I was a chief of staff for a state center, conservative state center from Orange County for five years. Mm-hmm. And I would get meetings all the time. And I get these ones from a lot of the you know, LGBTQ students or, or advocates. And they would come in the office and they would give me a list of bills that, that needed to pass to protect gay kids. Um, and I have a certain sympathy for these kids. I, they, they may have struggles with, and questions about their sexuality and whatever. And I'm not there to tell them you know, if, if they're doing the right thing or not. I mean, I'm not there to judge their parents either. But what I would often say is back to them is, listen, tell me one circumstance in California for which you've actually been um, threatened or intimidated whatever. I think most of it's a figment of your imagination or most of it's just challenges you've had to deal with with your parents that no law on earth is going to help or fix. Because I can tell you from experience, my kids are often the minority and often um, ostracized because they have traditional values. Um, They come from a religious home um, where where their ideas are not respected. So I understand what it means to send a kid to school and have them harassed or intimidated or bullied because of who they are or what they believe. But I don't know in California that most of these kids, at least on that part of the spectrum, that way. So that's one issue. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not saying it just couldn't be a problem. I don't know that any legislation fixes those things. Mm -hmm. But I also know too, is that we have a lot of teachers engaging in conversations in classrooms for which they have no business talking about i loved when my teacher kept me guessing about where they were politically or you know about their family or their home life what i didn't know and when he went to ask about their romantic relationships or other things they didn't tell you like you had to guess but now it's almost like no we're going to infuse that that's why you have these libs of tiktok Uh, videos are so incredible because they they just sit and tell us who they are all day long it becomes about
1: them and not the kids exactly most
0: of them don't care about the kids they care about themselves and so when they say well i care about these kids who are you know being abused or neglected or harassed at home well no you don't because you you've not spent the 15 16 17 years at home um working through some really hard issues and anybody who has a teenager knows you could have the best teen- teenager in the world and life is still very difficult. Mm-hmm. It just is. Mm-hmm. So a teacher, there's a certain hubris when these people think that they can take these kids and automatically transform them. And I push back against that. So when you have this hyper-sexualized education, when you have critical race theory, when you've got this social, emotional learning models, all these things are meant to strip away parental autonomy and control over the kids um, in schools. Schools have local parentis, meaning that they have responsibility for these kids when they're in their possession, when they're in their realm on the school, and and they they have to have legal liabilities and protections. But what we don't do is we don't sign over the entire lease of our kids to to these parents and and administrators.
1: Mm -hmm. We
0: just simply say they're on loan to you for a little bit.
1: And Mm -hmm. by the way,
0: I'm the parent. So if you have some sort of situation, you have to get my consent to do those things. Mm -hmm. There was a bill recently that was um, passed legislature, uh, SB 866, which seeks to to take consent away from parents and give it to kids as young as 12 years old. It's ridiculous. Anybody who knows a 12 year old knows they have, (laughs) they don't know their head from a hole in the ground. They don't know their medical history. They don't know anything. And even my 17 and 18 year old, They don't know what they're talking about most of the time. We have to spend a lot of time walking through these issues. So to say you're going to give them consent to inject things into their body for which they may not be prepared. I had um, an allergic reaction to penicillin. After the 10th dosage of penicillin, I woke up one night. My head was the size of a watermelon. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't breathe. You know, I had to go to an emergency room. And when I got there, they took me right in and gave me a you know an EpiPen and a Benadryl and made me sit there for several hours until things calmed down. I almost died because of a drug that we give billions of people every year. Yeah. Um, so there are things that can happen and parents are aware of those issues. And so when we take consent out of the parents' hands and give it to teachers or give it to administrators who don't know these kids, who are also not responsible for them, should something go wrong. Um, then we've done a great disservice. And I think governors like DeSantis in Florida have recognized that problem, decided that they're not willing to hand over our kids to bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Parents own their kids, period, mm-hmm. end of sentence. And so th- the other thing too, is we do a lot of pl- you know, political uh, narratives. Uh, you know, It was easy for a lot of people on the left to say, this is the don't say gay bill. It had nothing to do with that. Yeah. And everything to do with the fact that these parents having control about the education of their kid that's age appropriate, that's respectful, that's thoughtful, that's scientifically accurate, and doesn't involve grooming these kids. And uh, I think that's where we are with a lot of uh, states now. Even conservative states are looking back and saying, ooh, maybe we should think about this a little bit harder. Because for too many years, we've allowed the left to overrun our schools. And now they're, they've are become these little indoctrination camps for communists and socialists. That's not what I want out of education at all. So we've got to push back against that stuff. And I think it's appropriate, access, and, and acceptable when we mandate our kids have to go to school, compulsory education, when that is required, then we should have the ability to create boundaries about what happens at that school while we're forcing parents to send their kids away.
1: Can you define, because there seems to be a lot of hoopla around this world and around this word, and I don't even know that I know it um, exactly, like, is everything considered, it feels like everybody's calling everybody a groomer now, like, if someone's, like, what is a groomer? Like, what, you know, it's, again, it's- Well, the FBI has a
0: definition. The FBI has a definition. It's very simple. It's somebody who has control over somebody else, um, can isolate them, can make them do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do without that influence.
1: Mm.
0: um and again it doesn't always have to be a sexual thing it could be for ideology it could be for uh different political paths i remember that that uh, teacher in sacramento who decided he had 180 days to turn all his kids into revolutionaries
1: yeah I saw that. you know
0: that's a groomer right
1: there mm. now
0: uh, anybody who takes these young minds and manipulates them mm. that's a groomer. um now i know a lot of lefty teachers who are fantastic teachers, because they don't manipulate, their- mm-hmm. they don't put them in, in positions of power and authority and, and, and control them. They make sure that they expose them to new ideas, but also, you know, keep them centered. They understand that one day, these kids are going to make decisions on their own about a, a lot of things in life but they don't want to be the arbiters for what that looks like. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. And I
0: think that's kind of, when you get back to, to groomers, it's not, again, there's a sexual connotation to it because that's the most common usage. Mm. But it's any teacher that wants to manipulate these kids and make them be something that they're not. Mm-hmm.
1: Or like you said, push them in a certain direction where they wouldn't normally go um, yes. of, their own, of their own curiosity or inclination. Yeah. I remember I was, you know, when it talks about it's, it's just so bizarre because when we were in elementary school, I remember we used to joke like, oh, what do you think Mrs. So-and-so does with her husband? Do you think they're married? Do you think they have sex? Do you think they?" <laughs> you know, it was always right. like, what do you think? As kids do, right? <laughs> yeah. What do you think? We always used to make up these stories. Well, I bet, Oh God, she's, she, she would never have sex with her husband, you know, or something like this. And who knows? Like we have, we had no clue about any of that. I mean, somebody could have been gay and we we just didn't know it. And um I think you're right that some teachers have lost their, uh, their ability to see it's not about them. But I think that's culture in general. It's, it's, we're a very selfish, me-focused culture, right? You need to cater to every little individual whim of mine. Um, and if you don't, then my life is destroyed. I'm, you're not seeing me as a full human or a person. I'm like, no, go live your life the way you want to live it. I just don't, don't force me to, to have to cater to you. Um, and that sounds like this crazy ultra liberalism thing. But again, it's like, well, what you do, you, I don't live anywhere near you. You don't affect my community. I mean, maybe that's selfish, but I'm more concerned about my neighbors and, the woman who I had a conversation with in the coffee shop yesterday—that's more likely going to affect me than what you do in your personal life. Um, and to force everybody into the same kind of belief and and this is the right way—I'm like, well, you know, not everybody agrees with my beliefs, and I—and that's okay. all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who cares?
0: Um, right? Like, yeah. I don't think that everybody should be a drone of Lance Christensen. Yeah. And I don't think everybody should believe as Lance Christensen does. But I also believe. That I, if I have a good idea, I should persuade people to my side. Correct. And so I'm willing to have those long conversations. I'm willing to have the hard conversations. I'm willing to change my mind when the facts change or when I am shown me facts. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what bring, it's a benefit to me in anything I do. I'm not so hard or ideological or, or uh, immovable that I can't be persuaded to a better thing. And I, I would hate to think that I'm the same person I was in high school or in college or when I was newly married or had my first or second kid. I think I'm a lot different. And I think a lot of those rough parts of the stone rolling down the mountain have have popped off and, and hopefully that experience, that wisdom has smoothed out my perspective a little bit, but also give me more momentum to do the right thing.
1: Yeah. Well, I also think that's, you know, I've had this discussion with a couple of people like, I'm at the point now where I'm, I enjoy being political because it's actually fun. Like, it's fun to have debates. Like you said, it's a, it's the art of persuasion. That's what politics was about. It, it's like, okay, you have a good idea. Persuade me. It's the best one. Persuade me. It's better than mine with facts and, and maybe with a little bit of emotion, but um. I don't let it. It's not like I'm losing sleep at night over any of these things. Right. And I think that's how you have to enter the realm of politics, where it is the great debate. It is it is the the ring, you know, get in the ring. And that's where I have a problem with people who just check out, you know, that's like, well, it's easier just to not be involved. Were you actually in a democracy or a republic, you know, Republican? democracy. You don't have that choice. That's right. That's not what this country is about. You want to check out, go to a go to a socialist country. You want to be told what to do. You want you, if you want that, that's not what this country is. You don't have that luxury to completely check out. It, it actually requires your participation in some level, whether it's local or some people are called to, you know, broader scale, but that's what we're supposed to be. Um, so I, I'm just having a good time. Yeah.
0: And life should be fun. It should be enjoyable. It should be there should be some amount of, you know, happiness and everything you do. And, and, and again, that's not to say it's devoid of sadness or, or challenges or um, conflicts, but it doesn't need to be contentious all the time. And it doesn't need to be chaotic. It should be ordered. Yeah. And so that's what I see to do in my life. I, I really, I'm, I'm all about making sure that things are in their p- proper place. And when there is order, there's peace and there's happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, when there is not there's chaos and madness and misery and so we can decide california which way do we want to go and right now it's the path of chaos and i don't think anybody enjoys that
1: yeah well here's to you bringing some order how do we find you how do we hear more of you people are curious about what your platform is and where can we see you before the vote which is on Tuesday, June seventh, I believe.
0: Correct. So people can check out my um, website, LanceChristensen.com, dot um, dot com, mm-hmm. and they can go there and, and you know read about me, my platform, see all the places I've been um, uh, in the media. My they can follow my social media platforms there. I have a medium blog that I try to blog a couple times a week when I can get it in.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and then I also produce some video content as well, just outlining my, my background. And so anybody who wants to find that stuff can find it. They can donate doors, um, you know, and support me from there.
1: Well, I hope to have you back on when you are the... Public state superintendent, what's the word? Superintendent
0: of Public Instruction, yeah.
1: Superintendent of Public Instruction, and we will get to do a follow-up and a catch-up on what you're doing for this great state of California. I appreciate it. All right, thanks Lance, so great to talk to you. Thanks everyone for joining me on that wonderful interview with Lance. It's so good to be back, and I can't wait to bring you more awesome conversations. Stay tuned for the next episode. I'll be talking with the healthy gut girl, Kitty Martone, And while the intent was to talk about gut health, we get into so much more. You don't want to miss it.